We're now starting to look at the metabolism of buildings. And after the metabolism of buildings, I'm sure, we'll start to look at the, uh, the, the, their nervous systems. And they will become, uh, almost when I think, domesticated ecosystems. We are, you see, at a very peculiar moment in history. The old framework. We're trying to understand the evil that's abroad. Science itself now we has become We are conserving It's impossible to care for each other more. What must be done how we care for the overcome yet? On a rocky outcropping off the northeastern coast of England, the monastery of Lindisfarne once stood as an outpost of religious, philosophic, and intellectual study against the dark times of medieval Europe. Inspired by the foresight and dogged determination of these medieval monks, William Irwin Thompson founded the Lindisfarne Association in 1972 to gather together old scientists, scholars, artists, and contemplatives to realize a new planetary culture in the face of the political, cultural, and environmental crises of the 20th century. The Lindisfarne tapes represent some of the most visionary thinking of the time, drawing connections between culture, economics, society, and technology. While the germs of new ideas contained in these tapes are now beginning to take root, they remain an invaluable source of speculative thinking that will continue to inspire our visions of a more just and regenerative future. In this Lindisfarne lecture, architect, mathematician, and designer Sean Wellesley Miller reconceives architecture in the image of the bioshelter. The house, no longer the endpoint of consumption, becomes a domesticated productive ecosystem. This new architecture cultivates a more profound attachment to place, promoting decentralization and strengthening local economies. Um, I've never tried lecturing from a rocking chair before. <laughs> <laughs> It'll probably change things completely. Um, what I'm trying to do is uh, ramble through a pattern of ideas for the first half of things, and then center on some more uh, concrete examples in the second part of things. Uh, I often find it very difficult to lecture, and in fact I'm pretty notorious at MIT as being a lousy lecturer, uh, mainly because I prefer to think about of a bunch of ideas and to interconnect them uh, in a non-linear fashion than I do to talk with one thing after another. As a result of this uh, impediment in my head, uh, I tend to try and overcome it by talking too fast. I think if I can talk really fast, <laughs> right, so there, there's a warning. If I do start going too fast, please tell me to uh, slow down. Um, okay. Well, I was the first thing I thought about it, uh, was uh, the theme of the, con the of the conference on planetary uh, conscience, and. Um, I wanted to avoid being a Jerry Meyer if I could, and sort of looked at some ways we could uh, uh, improve things, the ways we could do things, and so on. And the first thing that struck me is, in fact, we only finished mapping the uh, planets uh, at the end of the century. 
And that's not very long ago. I mean, when here we are sitting talking about planetary consciousness. Uh, some areas of the planet uh, have only uh, recently attained regional autonomy. Some of them still haven't yet, where people are in charge of their own local context. There are, of course, huge disparities uh, in levels of consciousness all over the planet at the moment. So I think if you look at this background, and uh, it's both uh, a cause of a heartening cause in the sense that, well, um, we've got a long way to go, and not everybody is in the level of uh, planetary consciousness, and it's also a worrisome one for the same reasons. But it does show the rate at which things have been moving for the last century. And uh, I think that rate of looking at that exponential rather than all the other ones about limited food supplies, energy running out, and so on, is something that should be balanced against it. And what I want to do now is try and identify at various levels a whole lot of other things like that which we may uh, be able to use, uh, integrate, uh, and hopefully uh, set against some of the other problems, which I don't want, on the other hand, to, to appear uh, too uh, easy about. I mean, any place that only has 23 days uh, food supply, which is roughly the time it would take to distribute it, is uh, in a bad shape, and that's almost the way things are. Now, um, <coughs> the most important recent uh, event, the way I see it, uh, is, strangely enough, the space program in some ways, in that we have moved out of the frame, as Avery said earlier today. And this, I see, is the end of a certain um, movement and almost justifies the, uh, the space program insofar as it put up satellites so that we could see the whole system and start to monitor it and understand it in a new way. I don't think going to the moon is particularly important at all. It's much more important to be able to see the whole globe and move around with it and think and so on and so forth. But it did lead to some interesting images and polarizations that we can see now inside of our culture uh, that I want to talk more about. The first of these is the idea of you know, the old spaceship Earth uh, idea. I think this is an awful one. My first question is, where's the control room? Somebody's managed to tell me. You know, um, Secondly, it's a very mechanistic and a very static image. The Earth is an evolutionary system. Most uh, uh, spaceships aren't. And uh, I think as a result of this, it's led to some other sort of polarizations that are going on that you see all the time. And uh, basically, I've been trying to justify what I uh, do in my research. And the things that we get, if I can move some of this off, are these sorts of polarizations. You're familiar with them all, I expect. Excuse my spelling. High-tech versus low-tech. Okay? That's the one that's going around all the time. Um, for various reasons, uh, which I'll go into in a minute, that I think that's very uh, naive. Um, the other ones you'll get down on this side is uh, alternative technology. Let's prove I can spell over there, um, there's intermediate technology. And we'll, you'll have all of these going down this side and with different attempts to it, backed up against this one. And the, it boils down, in many cases, to energy versus environment, uh, to um, uh, being in control of your situation and understanding things, to not being in control of your things and understanding things, and so on. And uh, <coughs> the first thing 
if you look even at a windmill, which is a part of alternative technology, and you look at its blade design, that's based on hundreds of computer hours. It's certainly not low-tech. In fact, if you look at most uh, so-called low-tech things, including the glass in your solar collectors, uh, selective surfaces, and so on and so forth, there's very, very little that's low-tech. And also, that when you go and get into this a little more, and you're saying, well, one of the ideas of low-tech alternative technology, intermediate technology, is we can make everything on a low scale. Well, it turns out that you can't very easily. And uh, this is very unfortunate, this polarization, because it leads to some other things that, uh, that, that I think are misconceptions. You have the idea of survival. America is very sort of uptight, being the most comfortable place on Earth about survival. Um, and the idea is that, oh, we'll have to go back to the fields and uh, sort everything out, uh, everything out, and um, we can't do this because uh, uh, if you did, it would take practically everybody to be busy with uh, agriculture and things like that to support the rest of the system. And I, um, now what I'm saying is, I'm setting something up between these two here, and I want to try and resolve those to show that, in fact, you can do things. You can do a lot. And the, this, this sort of argument has polarized things in a way that has done more damage than it's done good about it. First of all, it's naive. And secondly, it stops uh, thinking in many ways. And um, I want to then sort of <coughs> look at uh, some things that uh, uh, Norbert Wiener, a childhood hero of mine, uh, said. Uh, quite a long time ago, when he was taking an example of technology, and he went back to the Industrial Revolution, and uh, he asked himself the question, in a way, uh, what would have happened if the electric motor had been invented slightly before the steam engine? And it's rather interesting, because you can see that technologies have definite consequences. If you have uh, a central power station with a big uh, steam engine in the middle here, and then a long drive shaft running down with lots of belts running it off to it, to little machines here, which is more or less the beginning of the factory system. All the patents in the 19th century are on uh, joints and mechanisms for doing this. And obviously, everybody has to come here with a centralized power source to work. If, on the other hand, and they were quite historically quite close, uh, you'd had the electric motor, you, instead of having a factory system as a takeoff for industrialization, you may well have stayed with cottage industries because you can put four or five different electric motors in one machine. You have got into information theory a lot, lot earlier. And the whole way of industrialization later on would have looked quite different. Now, uh, I think we should look at our current situation very much in those terms. And what sort of worries me sometimes uh, when I'm talking to people in government and so on is that there's very little thinking going on in those terms, about what are the consequences of the sort of decisions we're taking in technology now likely to be. And um, <coughs> the, the dilemma, of course, is the one between energy and environment that we were talking about to begin with, which there's the nuclear energy people, what I would call a star technology, versus eco-technology. There's another sort of polarization that you get going across that. Uh, I myself am very much against uh, nuclear energy, and it scares me shitless, because I don't know what they're going to do with 270 billion curies of waste by the year 2000, if they get the 1,000 stations that they're planning. I don't worry about the safety, I'm worrying about what they're doing with the waste. 
Um, but there are going to be uh, huge consequences, long historical and uh, cultural consequences, of the types of decisions that we're making now. If you do go to uh, develop a, a nuclear energy and say the problems are solved, as a result of that, the way the planet is going to look and what's going to happen to the whole of the human race in the next uh, 100 or 200, 300, for a long time, years, is going to be very, very different than if you put our money, which is exactly what's happening now, into another form of technology, which may be more solar and wind-oriented and more eco-technology. Of course, again, you're getting a polarization here. But the consequences, believe me, are going to be quite different. And it's going to predetermine uh, right now, when we're getting to the end of our oil resources and other fossil fuel sources, the choice that we make is one that we're going to have to sit with for a very, very long period of time. We're sort of committing ourselves. And we're, the trouble is, I think, that we're starting to commit ourselves um, by default in the same way as in the 19th century when uh, humanity, or at least the Western portion of it, uh, decided to go in for technology. They did that uh, again by default. And it was a one-way choice. The fact is, we can't all go back to the land. There's too many people to do that. We need to have a high energy input to, to uh, maintain things. So I was uh, thinking about these things. And when I was in, o in Ojai this summer in California, um, for the first time, I started to look at what we could do about it. And one of the things that I noticed is that the, most of the, um, how would I, uh, the economic systems, you will, I'd prefer to call it almost our uh, domesticated ecosystems, have got too specialized and spread out. I mean, when you're importing uh, um, tomatoes from, um, from, Canada, from sorry, California to Boston, and if you go to your McDonald's, you're getting beef raised in Argentina, there's, a, there's something wrong uh, there. You, it, too spread out and makes it too tricky and too dangerous for it. And then you look around at the different areas inside of America, and you, uh, I happened to be in a very geologically defined valley where I was. And I thought, really, couldn't we have a look at this valley and just see in our local community how far we are from being self-sufficient in some way? Because it was a naturally defined unit. And don't we really need measures of this? Much better measures than we have. And I talked with people there because they, they were very open to these ideas. And the first thing was, was this answer, oh, we can't do that because then we'll get back to a survival uh, economy. And I was saying, listen, if America, with all its wealth and richness and the productivity of the land, can't just take care of business, i.e., making sure that the local econets are together, then uh, you're nowhere. Of course, it's not a problem. It's just like taking care of business and you can go on making a profit and specializing and doing everything else on top of that. Once you've taken care of making sure that you've got local food supplies together, uh, looking at the local town council and seeing how you can help things to get better energy independence. And even in that little valley, there were multiple ways of improving the situation, upgrading their, their environment uh, in such a way that the business could go on as usual, but you've taken care of this. And that's not a difficult thing. It's not a question of, oh, we've all got to go back to, to, to basics. And uh, I think the reason that people don't normally think like that is that they've got polarized between this high-tech, low-tech, alternative technology. They've seen things as too much of a transformation instead of seeing things as that, how can we make that step sideways while maintaining the things uh, for the present time the way they are? Because it is a step different we want, not necessarily a step further at all. But I personally think that this is uh, quite... Uh, uh, 
reasonable to do. And what will happen is that each area, it's interesting to see how big an area you have to get before it would be independent. So you've got your spoons and forks and your ceramics together and uh, you can get your clothes. How big is that area that supports you if it was made as small as possible in your own region? And then because I was also involved with the, um, with the hmm, New Age movement for the first time there, I thought tacked on two other things to that. One, I think it's very important to know where you are. And knowing where you are means knowing where the energy flows go, knowing where your food supplies come from, knowing uh, many of those simple, basic things. When you know where you are, you know, maybe you can start thinking about when you are. And um, I, my, my own feeling is that I don't think people is, uh, um, are very evolved until they do know that because they've got no context. They're all you're meditating away someplace, and there's, there's, it's not tied in. It's not integrated with where you are. And it seems to me that one, the next thing I notice is that the New Age group has very excellent connections, especially in California and in certain parts of the country, Boulder, around Vermont, and so on and so forth. I'm like, isn't this an excellent group of people to start doing this sort of thing? Shouldn't it be part of their function to know where they are in the sense of looking at their local communities, finding out, uh, just itemizing, and seeing what would need to be done to get, say, 60% uh, self-sufficiency within a certain regional area? Not more than that. And then how much would you need to do to get up to 75%? What would you need to get to 100, maybe? And it's not necessary. I think this is... <coughs> this has got to happen. It's got to happen quickly. Because the size of the system, uh, the way it is now, is too open to shudders going through it. And there's going to be some shudders going through it. With, uh, um, is, you can see very obvious ones, like solving the energy crisis by uh, increased strip mining and shale oil is going to require incredible amounts of water. Acres, feet, you know, per, per million tons. Um, something like 125 acres, feet per uh, million tons of crude shale that you're processing. And this is in an area, say the southwest, where it's, um, where it's <coughs> not much water around. And if they do that, and I'm sure it's going to happen, whether, whatever, however you may feel about it, it's going to change the water table level. That means there's going to be more pumped irrigation. That means food prices are going to go up. And there's, there's just a million, that's just one, you know, there's a million ways you can see that you're in trouble. You're especially in trouble when your systems are so large. The, what I'm saying is by taking care of business and knowing where you are is, in a way, repairing the natural buffers that should be there. Um, there are excellent ways of doing this. I, I'm all in favor of garden clubs. I never thought I would be. My idea as a child of gardening was to have a concrete lawn painted green. But, um, <laughs> But uh, I think uh, garden clubs can do a great deal in this sort of thing because each area, again, is context-specific. Uh, uh, the way you garden here is very different to the way you'd garden in the southwest, for example, as an obvious example, and so on. And um, this led me a little further into, into this and saying, what do we really need? I think we need a couple of uh, little internal polarizations there. I think we need a transparency and a sort of sophisticated uh, simplicity in terms of our uh, uh, technology, which again, as an example of it, I would take the, the airfoil, which is a simple geometric form, but uh, incredibly sophisticated in how you arrive at it and how it works and so on. And we need more and more things like that. And I think our technology is gradually working towards that in its finest examples. Um, 
Again, we've got to, there's another theory that's going around that's very closely related to some of the things I'm saying, and that's sort of the limits to growth or no growth or steady state economy. What can you do there? Well, I think, again, the language is unfortunate. No growth, steady state. It's not that that, that, that uh, particularly matters. Um, what you want to do is set a, a series of goals saying we want to have 90% of our economy by the year 2000, or 90% is too much, it won't be able to achieve that. But say something like at least 75% of it is running on income energy, is one thing. The, the rate of, you have another goal in how much you can uh, uh, recycle. These are things that you can measure, you can say, you can look at, and it's not then becoming a steady state. It's a society that's changing direction. The uh, growth opportunities are immense, even for business and corporations to, uh, to go into, into that area. The growth area is going to be the areas that move in that direction. And there are some enlightened businessmen, I was very surprised to find, who do think like that. <coughs> now, uh, I did, in fact, work out a, uh, a list, which I'm very sad to have misplaced. I just moved offices at MIT of uh, sort of um, goals that I tried to fit together that would describe uh, what I would consider a reasonable economy in, in, in those terms and how much you would, you would still do some fossil fuels. It would still be the perpetual chemicals, of course. They'd still be doing that. Then you'd be looking at the whole idea of net energy and something else, which is the real bugbear of this, because net energy is not quite enough. You've got to consider thermodynamic uh, availability. In other words, the temperature at which you get your energy. One of the difficulties with uh, most uh, alternative energy sources is that they're low-grade heat and not high-grade heat. And uh, this brings me to the second part, because uh, looking at this, I thought, well, you know, well, what can I do? And uh, how can I work on things as an, as an architect, which is basically what I am? Uh, and there it struck me that the home is very much the begin point of, um, of demand and the end point of consumption for the whole economy. Anything that you do there is going to have a large ripple effect going across things, because you're right at the, the source of the begin point and the end point. So one of the things we, we said ourselves, and when you put me down as Sean as the inventor of the biosphere, I'm certainly not. If, if anybody, Daisha Rudy had more to do with it than I did, and a number of other people have been developing the idea. But our goal was, we said, let's imagine that we could make a, um, a domesticated ecosystem that would heat itself, cool itself, produce about 70% of its food supplies, recycle its water and its other waste, and presumably even have a part of it that's uh, capable of extending the system, I mean, producing its own materials for developing itself. And this is not such, a, this is not such an original idea, because if you look at the history of, uh, of modern architecture, in the uh, uh, 60s, 50s and 60s, the big thing uh, in technological advance, as opposed to style, form, and everything else like that, was the space structures that were being done that you've, thought you've seen them all at the um, uh, Montreal exhibit and then in Osaka and so on, the inflatable structures, the uh, tensile structures, the space frames and these sorts of things. In other words, the physiology of buildings was being looked at and changed quite radically. And then if you start looking at it in those terms, there's an evolution in uh, architecture. It's only just beginning in that sense. After physiology comes metabolism. We're now starting to look at the metabolism of buildings. And after the metabolism of buildings, I'm sure, 
we'll start to look at the, uh, the, at the their nervous systems. And they will become uh, almost, like I think, domesticated ecosystems. And this was the, the goal, the one goal that we set ourselves. And here I'd like to uh, move into the slide and uh, show you uh, a schematic of such a system. Now, I'm not suggesting this is a sort of a categorical imperative and uh, uh, a solution for everybody. It's more or less an exercise at this stage. And we are building a few of these. We call them bioshells. I'm doing one at uh, Ojai for the uh, Human Dimensions Institute West. And we're doing, uh, Day is building his own home. And I hope to be doing some things in downtown Boston on my route from Chinatown where I live. Right. Now here, this rather complicated looking diagram. Um, it, what I want to talk about more of this is the philosophy of it rather than the, the mechanics. And one of the first things we decided to do to eschew was the uh, mechanical engineering approach, where you'd go and take off the shelf, uh, you'd divide everything inside of the, or the organism here up into discrete functions, and then go and put them in fairly linearly. We wanted to impose a lot of functions on, on, on top of one thing, or in each area of it. So with this, this uh, um, as you'll see later, this diagram makes it look much more discrete than it in fact is. For example, in the greenhouse here, we uh, are not only getting uh, uh, heat in here, we're getting food out of it, we're recycling our water through it, and we're giving humidity control for the areas, for the internal areas of the buildings. And so it's producing many more than one function. It's also recycling the water that comes through here, and around the leach field you get built up a biomat that goes around there that handles about a gallon per square foot uh, a minute. That comes up through here, goes across to the, this surface here. We've got the transparent insulation that I'll talk about later in there. Uh, condenses, comes down, and gives you distilled water as a potable water supply going across here to your kitchen. In the same way, some of the clippings can go to aquaculture systems, such as you've heard uh, John Todd talk about, or to uh, methane generation if you're particularly doing that. And that's one of the biggest problems in any system is getting um, heat that's uh, high enough temperature for cooking. If we uh, grade uh, temperatures inside of a home, the, the highest <coughs> is uh, for lighting and so on. That's uh, electrical energy. The next highest is for cooking, which is around 350, um, 350 uh, degrees Fahrenheit. The next after that would be for uh, refrigeration, which is about 220, which you'd need, assuming you're using a lithium bromide cycle. The next after that is for space heating. And here again, I'm not just talking about net energies, I'm talking about the quality of energy, which is the concept that sometimes gets left out of that uh, net energy approach and what makes it often fallacious. Now, um, some people say, oh, it's not a very good idea to impose so many functions on each thing, that you've, each surface that you've got inside of the building. Uh, I usually point out to them that they're talking when they're telling me that. And through their own mouths, they uh, also use them for talking, eating, um, breathing, kissing, and probably a few other things. And so if you're looking at most, uh, if you look at leaf structure on trees, you'll find the same thing. It does many, many functions at the same time on the same area. And I won't bore you by going through these, but most of the loops here that we, we've had, we've uh, looked at, have been uh, closed. They're closed loops. It recycles its water, it recycles your waste, and there'll be some things outside of it. Now, this is an ideal paradigm. So I have the next um, thing. Here we did, we tried to look at it and build a little computer model 
to, uh, to simulate this because not everything in it is uh, linear, used in the correct sense of the word. Um, we've got, here we've got our environmental inputs, the different interfaces that we're, that we're looking at, um, here the converters, and out there the services that, that you get to it. And then we gave values for these, stuck them inside of a computer, and tried to simulate how such a house had behaved. And one of the things that, that uh, <coughs> I didn't include in the last thing is that indeed, the, as soon as you're talking in that level of complexity, then you're starting to monitor things. You want to do this with, the, with um, you can often do this with your eyes and so on, but who wants to spend all their time running their home? Nobody does. And that's what it would almost mean if you looked at it the first way. So you want to automate the watering of your garden a little bit so that you can afford to go away without all the plants dying. Um, if you start doing that, you start automating the home, you're suddenly getting into nervous systems inside of your building. I could imagine that you'll have a urinologist, uh, uh, sorry, that your urine will be tested every time you went to the toilet or uh, sporadically by the system inside of the house that would tell you how you ought to change what you're growing in your garden to balance your diet better. <laughs> I mean, why not? No, there's, there's many possibilities. Again, the system is using nearly all the same elements that you have in the biosphere itself. You're living together with your own domestic bacteria that you'll have inside of the uh, waste breakdown unit, which may be a clivus toilet or may not be, uh, or, or inside your methane generation. And we'll start doing research very soon on getting better strains of bacteria, domestic bacteria. We'll have worms working for us. They'll be part of your household. There'll be a lizard inside of your greenhouse who's looking after the aphids that they tend to grow, and so on and so forth. They, were, they will be using the same heat uh, sinks and the same heat sources, the sun and the night sky, to uh, take care of, uh, of the energy flows. In other ways, it really is uh, a domesticated ecosystem that you're trying to build and trying to live with. Can the next slide, please? You could... Here are some... Um, visualizations uh, of this at various levels of uh, uh, away from conventional architecture. This is about the closest that we'll start with, and it just shows you a condominium with, uh, here we have a, a climate control system, which I'll get into uh, later on. This is a controlled environment in there, and you can uh, uh, have uh, year-round 70-degree temperatures in about three-quarters of the USA. Can I have the next slides? I want to go through these quickly just to show you the sorts of things that may be happening. Next one, please. Yeah, this is the house that my partner, Dave Rudy is building for himself now in, um, in New Mexico. And again, all these uh, functions that you can see here in the last diagram, they had little blocks and arrows around them, are here suffused through the whole building rather than being like if you looked in the Apollo uh, uh, capsule, you saw uh, it was very mechanistic. Fortunately, working down here, and if you suffuse things, you don't need to be very mechanistic, and you can also all make, all, almost make all the systems work themselves. So it's like a terrarium. It, uh, it just keeps going. It's balanced. Next one, please. Here we tried some using against the more modern techniques of uh, structure. We were talking about the physiology of buildings using thin skins. And this is soon going to lead to the next part that I'm coming to, about how we're we going to control this is almost like an osmotic or a biological membrane over the internal microclimate. The next one, please. 
Let me start it going down. Next, please. Yeah, this is one that um, uh, I hope to be building. In fact, I'd like uh, <coughs> to build this in the New England area somewhere. And uh, these is all standard units, and there are pipes going across these, which can be uh, hydraulic. Uh, and you could make this building change shape, size, dance, walk down the road, open up in fine weather, clamp down before the storm comes. Literally, it's, it's not a joke. It's quite easy to do once you've uh, started thinking about buildings that way. This one here, well, this is just a drawing, but the one I'd like to build would be somewhere around about half an acre. And you can see that uh, it's a very open sort of system. It's like back to the Garden of Eden. And I'll get into that in, in the next slides to you. See that there it is. You've got these different uh, decks out here where we've got the heat storage systems inside of it, a pond here, the greenery, fruit trees even inside, and so on and so forth, which you're living with as part of the... It's like in Kerala. If you've ever been in South India, they built some big buildings there to put the steel workers in. For the, they gave a lot of steel works to keep the communists in Kerala happy. And nobody would move into the big housing that they gave to it because in Kerala, everybody lives in his garden. And uh, they thought, oh, they've got awful living conditions. Why don't they like our new modern flats? Well, the new modern flats didn't grow plates for them. The new modern flats didn't give them their food supplies. And the new modern flats didn't naturally moderate the, the different uh, climates on the sites that you'll have in uh, Kerala and South India. They don't even have villages there very much. Um, Polynesian architecture is a little bit the same, not quite so extreme as in Kerala. Have the next one, please. Uh, this is one we started to make for uh, Aspen. It shows you a little bit more how that, that system works for moving it around. I'm not a great admirer of domes. I think domes are just as silly as rectangles. I mean, we want to have something that uh, fits its local context. And with this system, the structural system was one that more or less did that and could, could, could uh, change you know, over time, summer to winter and so on. All right, now this is uh, something that, that uh, we call a climatic envelope and is the key to much of what we're doing and the system that we're working on most at the moment. Um, we realize, <coughs> well, putting it, a little simplistically, that there were, if you assume that the Garden of Eden, Eden largely existed because it had an ideal climate, then there were exactly four uh, inventions between us and the Garden of Eden that were required to get back. The first one being uh, a transparent weather skin, which you'd have on the outside here. The second one being uh, a transparent insulation. The third one being a material, which I have a sample of somewhere, uh, called cloud gel, that clouds over. When, you, when it's uh, too warm on the inside. And the fourth one would be uh, heat storage. Now, what we're trying to do is reduplicate the uh, behavior of the atmosphere within thin films, thin polymer films. Uh, our transparent insulation that I was talking about is more or less uh, the same thing as a transparent uh, ball of blanket of gas that circles the globe and which the sunlight comes through, but heat doesn't leave too quickly the, uh, because of the carbon dioxide content and so on. The cloud gel is our very, um, as the name implies, convenient form of clouds. As soon as the internal temperature rises above, inside of this space, rises above a certain point, it um, <coughs> clouds over, becomes a partially cloudy day. The building changes from being a sort of blue, transparent blue, to uh, a white opalescence. 
and excess heat is then um, uh, reflected off. At the same time, to cool it, we also use a passive means here. We all uh, uh, thermodynamic processes on Earth dump their heat out to space, which is by definition at uh, absolute zero, or to the night sky, which is about 40 from uh, ambient air at the ground. And what we did then is what we're working on now is to develop this uh, external skin in such a way that it lets uh, sunlight through and also lets uh, heat through very easily. We discovered that uh, the reason why some, on some nights uh, a pond, uh, a, a little puddle freezes, and on another night the same puddle doesn't freeze when the temperature is exactly the same, is because <coughs> there's usually a small wind coming over. And this replaces the heat that the puddle is losing to the night sky as fast as it's losing it. So what we had to do was to develop an IR, that's a heat transparent windscreen as our outer skin to let the heat from a radiating plate here. Do I have the next slide? Will, will become clear right there. Yeah, these are some earlier. That's upside down. Okay, it doesn't matter. Next one, please. Oh, that's more, that's uh, sadder. I used to give lectures about uh, artificial intelligence at one time. You could always guarantee that the film would be in backwards, upside down, and that the uh, microphone wouldn't work. This is terrible. <laughs> Anyway, if you can see this, this uh, layer here is uh, the outside one where the radiation is coming through. Uh, these are baffles on the Reynolds number to suppress convection and conduction. Inside of here is the, uh, the cloud gel that's going on. And this is the inside. It's meant to be that. It's to give you some idea of it. Go to the next slide. And Oh, dear, oh, dear. I'm sorry. Well, what I was going to say, what we were doing was to, we decided we'd have to look and make a parametric analysis of uh, solar climate control systems. And we looked at uh, every different parameter involved, like how can you suppress uh, uh, conduction? How can you suppress convection? And when, with each of these questions, we wrote down three or four answers. And then you've got a whole lot of these different answers, and you put different combinations of them together. And this gave you, in a way, all possible solar climate control systems. <laughs> Right, this is exactly what happens every time. <laughs> right, here's the one we actually made and tested in the lab to get our results from. And these are sort of other possible ways of doing it that are widely spaced in the possibility space of all possible solutions, or nearest damn it, all possible solutions, depending on how you define the problem. And um, here we have uh, this layer here is the IR transparent layer that I was talking about. And here's the radiating plate. IR, I mean uh, infrared radiation. I should perhaps explain something. Um, if you look at these uh, energy spectrum, then you have UV as a high end, it's a very short wavelength. And then you get visible light uh, going from about um, 0 0.3, <coughs> 0.33 down to 2.5 microns. And that's the visible part of the spectrum. And then if you consider a black body radiating, right, that goes off at about uh, from 2.5 down to about 50 microns. That's the heat part of the spectrum. Now notice that those two parts of the spectrum are uh, divided from each other. What we basically want to do is make a shutter system so that we can let light in, it won't let heat out, in which case the interior will get hotter and hotter and hotter and hotter. Or else it says that we'll let heat out, but we won't let light in, in which case it'll get cooler and cooler and cooler down to its stagnation temperature. 
or up to its stagnation tendency. It can't go on forever, obviously. And these are the different ways of making those sorts of shutters to do this, of controlling it. Here we took a, this is one from uh, Steve Bears, where we just pumped some beads in and out, some polystyrene beads, to act as the insulation and uh, the, uh, to select the light off. Um, <coughs> but if I go through this one, this is where the heat comes up through here and heats up this plate, which radiates through that one. Now, this one is necessary, as I explained, because otherwise warm air could come across this one, and even though it's radiating, it wouldn't lose any net energy because it's being heated up at the same rate as it's being cooled down by radiating to the night sky. So during the day, during the night, you radiate to the night sky like that. The air comes back, it falls down on a natural convection cycle to the interior, and the interior cools. During the daytime, the, um, well, here we use a blind in this one, but it could be the cloud gel uh, layer, is switched to white, and it'll remain cool because it has all this insulation value here. And this part of things here that you Okay. Let's see. This part here is the transparent insulation. It'll let light through, but it won't let heat out. It'll let short wave radiation come through, but it won't let long wave radiation through because the molecules that are inside of it are roughly the same size as the long wave, ra wave radiation, which goes through why, which gives it a slight mirror effect. And um, now, if we were doing what I was first saying, we're radiating to the night sky, just like the Earth does every evening while it gets cooler at night, so there's no net in in income energy at that time, then the interior will cool down to roughly about 12 to 15 degrees. If, on the other hand, we want to heat up the interior, then we uh, keep all this transparent, the sunlight comes all the way through, okay, and uh, the heat can't get out. <coughs> and in that way, it will be, you can regulate this, uh, this environment inside. And our calculations show that in the, about the lower three quarters of the USA, we can maintain a 70 degree year-round temperature. We'd have some trouble when you get too far south. So I'm cutting out Houston and the line just across uh, from that Houston going across the country. It would be more difficult there. No, this is the, the fourth invention that we needed to get to uh, back to paradise was uh, heat storage. And what we're using here was um, uh, a solid that uh, accepts uh, energy but doesn't heat up. What it does, it converts that energy uh, in the same way as it you do when you've got 32-degree uh, ice and you're turning it to 32-degree water, okay, a phase change, in other words. So the actual uh, surface temperatures interior do not rise. They stay at the temperature, the melting point of the solid that you're using. And it happens to, for those of you who are interested, it's called the glabosol for sodium sulfate decahydrate, that's uh, the one that you use. And that's just in, inside of a normal cement. And uh, the cement doesn't get hotter as a result of the sun uh, coming onto it because it conducts the heat inwards and melts all the salts. And then when it gets too cold on the outside, all the salts uh, freeze and give their heat up. So it's uh, keeping that. And this is tuned, keeping the interior at a constant temperature. And that's tuned to be about roughly the same temperature at which the cloud gel changes. It uh, goes from transparent to opaque. And that was, uh, um, now the reason we're <coughs> trying to do this is an example of, a, in fact, a fairly high-tech approach, as I'm sure some of you are now convinced. But, um, 
nevertheless directed towards some uh, problems that, that I think make sense uh, to, to tackle. In the same way as the other one, uh, I hope, makes sense to tackle. Although myself, I think the biosphere smacks a little too much of an ecological bomb shelter. We do all have a, a, um, a collective responsibility for the uh, environment around us and each other. But nevertheless, as a paradigm, it shows a way you can go. And with that, I'd like to stop. Thank you for listening to the Lindisfarne Tapes. This podcast is brought to you by the Schumacher Center for a New Economics. For over 40 years, the mission of the Schumacher Center has been to envision the elements of a just and regenerative global economy, apply these elements in our home region in the Berkshires in western Massachusetts, and then develop the educational programs to share our results more broadly. To learn more about our work, visit our website at www.centerforneweconomics.org or find us on Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, or Instagram. For more podcast content, check out our Schumacher Lectures podcast. To help strengthen our mission, you can make a donation at www.centerforneweconomics.org donate.